welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is still the colorectal module from the General Surgical Curriculum. And the operation or topics we're going to be covering today are large bowel obstruction and pseudo-obstruction. So let's start with large bowel obstruction. Large bowel obstruction is where you have narrowing of the colorectal lumen that restricts passage of stool and gas. The three most common causes of large bowel obstruction are colorectal cancer, colorectal cancer, and colorectal cancer. Saying that though, there are some other rarer causes of large bowel obstruction that we do see. These include benign causes such as volvulus, typically of the sigmoid and sometimes the cecum, diverticular or radiation strictures, Crohn's or ulcerative colitis related strictures, and even sometimes from hernias. But saying that large bowel obstruction is mostly caused by malignant causes, the most common type of colorectal malignancy is an adenocarcinoma. You can get other causes such as GIST, uh, neuroendocrine tumors, lymphomas, or extrinsic compression from other tumors, for example, gynecological or urologic or um, carcinomatosis from other uh, pathologies. How do patients with a large bowel obstruction typically present? It depends on the degree of obstruction, so whether it's a complete obstruction or whether there's some fluid or gas still getting through, how long the obstruction's been going on for, and also, critically, the competence of the ileocecal valve. So, for example, a patient presenting with a complete large bowel obstruction at the sigmoid colon with a competent ileocecal valve will have gross abdominal distension of the colon. They may not have much vomiting, um, but they should have complete constipation. A patient with a uh, cecal large bowel obstruction may have an incompetent ileocecal valve with a grossly distended small bowel and lots and lots of vomiting and crampy abdominal pain. Patients may also present with symptoms related to the underlying pathology. So if this is a malignant presentation, they may have been having PR bleeding, changes in the bowel habits leading up to the presentation, symptoms of anemia, loss of weight, and also potentially a family history. Patients who've got uh, diverticular stricture may present with recurrent episodes of diverticulitis, and patients may also give you other features in history to suggest the cause such as previous radiation surgery or a history of inflammatory bowel disease. Patients will typically present quite unwell with significant uh, fluid and electrolyte imbalances and also potentially uh, sepsis from bacterial translocation or endotoxemia. They may be unwell with fevers and tachycardia. They'll often have a distended abdomen which is quite tympanic uh, for percussion because there's a lot of gas in the large colon that uh, causes the dilatation. They may have tenderness, and if they have a competent ileocecal valve, a grossly distended cecum and tenderness in the right lower quadrant, you have to be concerned about cecal ischemia, and they may have peritonism if they already have perforation. The workup of these patients, as with most surgical pathologies, includes a history and exam, which we've already talked about, 
Make sure to examine four hernias and look at previous scars. And also to send some bloods. So for these patients, you want to check their full blood count, looking for anemia, elevated white cell count. You want to look at their renal function and electrolytes, which are often deranged. I often send a set of liver function tests, especially if I'm suspicious for a malignant cause. This may give me an early warning that there is uh, liver metastases, uh, cultures if there's perforation or fever, a group and save. These patients often need operative intervention. And again, if I'm worried about a malignancy, I'll send a CEA level. Investigations typically then uh, go to imaging. Patients can have an abdominal x-ray, which is often quite useful at determining a number of features that you're looking for in a short period of time. So you'll be able to see whether there's any small bowel distension to suggest whether they have a competent or incompetent ileocecal valve. You can measure the cecal size. You can see free gas, and you may also see another diagnosis such as a volvulus. Typically, a large bowel obstruction um, has gross gas-filled dilation of the colon, which is peripherally placed in the abdomen, and you'll be able to see the halstra, uh, which are the white lines that do not completely cross the colorectal lumen. A CT scan with IV contrast in a stable patient uh, is the gold standard for diagnosing a large bowel obstruction. It will also give you information about where the obstruction is, the potential cause, such as a mass lesion, uh, the size of the bowel, and also can give you hints about perfusion and those other complications such as perforation. Flexible sigmoidoscopy and colonoscopy can sometimes be used in a situation where you have a patient presenting with a large bowel obstruction. We had one the other day where we did an on-table flexible sigmoidoscopy because we weren't clear what the cause of her obstruction was, given she'd had a previous presentation that was very similar about approximately six months earlier. Um, And I guess in those situations, you just need to be mindful that if you have a closed loop obstruction with a competent ileocecal valve and you insufflate and maybe put extra air if it's not a complete obstruction through into the closed loop area that you may uh, cause a perforation and turn a non-perforated cancer into a T4 cancer. So you need to be mindful to use very gentle insufflation and obviously do not bowel prep the patient. It may also be helpful to rule out asynchronous distal lesion, which may change your operative management. So moving into management, the management of a large bowel obstruction can be quite complex and it depends on a variety of factors. This includes patient factors, the presentation, as well as the likely pathology. So in terms of patient factors, you need to consider comorbidities, the patient's age, medications, and their nutritional status. In terms of presentation, depends on the clinical acuity. So whether the patient's perforated, completely obstructed, or you're worried about impending perforations, such as with a grossly dilated cecum and tenderness there. And the likely pathology also influences your decision-making. So whether you think it's malignant or non-malignant, And if it is malignant, where the tumor is located, what stage of disease, so is there any evidence of any metastatic disease elsewhere, and consideration of, therefore, if any other treatments may be required. Initial care, though, should be as per the CRISP protocol. This includes IV access, fluid resuscitation with intravenous fluids and electrolytes, 
maximization of any other comorbidities that you can maximize. A nasogastric tube, if the patient uh, is vomiting, for example, if they have an incompetent valve, and usually a indwelling catheter in order to monitor the patient's fluid balance. Here I'll throw in a goals of care discussion and also a discussion with the patient and their family about the risks of proceeding with surgery. Obviously, this discussion is going to be based on individual patient factors and considerations. But in general, the in-hospital mortality for a large bowel obstruction requiring emergency laparotomy is nearly 10%. And patients and their families need to understand that it's not often a decision against palliation and surgery, which equals surviving, but it may mean that a patient's going to have a protracted post-operative course and still not survive or not get back to their usual level of functioning. In these situations, I find it can be helpful to use the NILA score. That's an app that you can download about post-operative risks and likely outcomes for a patient having a laparotomy. And also the American College of Surgeons has a online tool called the NSQIP, N-S-Q-I-P calculator, and you can put in individual patient information and blood test results and comorbidities And it provides you with a assessment or estimate of what the risks are of that patient's uh, having certain complications, being discharged from hospital, whether they'll need nursing home, what their risk of mortality is. And you can actually print out that page and give it to families. And I'll often do that when I'm having a discussion with a family about whether or not to proceed with surgery. Um, And it helps to make that informed decision and provide informed consent. Typically, the management of a large bowel obstruction will be operative. Unless you have a sigmoid volvulus, which you may try to decompress endoscopically, and we're going to talk about sigmoid volvulus separately later in this episode, if you have a complete obstruction with a malignancy or a fibrotic stricture, then most of these are going to be managed with an operation to remove the obstruction. If you have a patient with disseminated peritoneal metastatic disease, this again may be a different discussion And options here may include palliation, a stent, a bypass or proximal diversion or resection, depending on uh, quite a few different considerations. But we're not going to go into that in this episode. We're going to focus on uh, simple obstruction from malignancy or strictures. So when we're talking about that group of patients and the decision has been made to go to theatre, there's a number of other things you need to think about preoperatively for those patients. The first thing is stoma site marking. Patients have different abdomens. Patients have different creases and folds. They may be obese or not obese. And placing a stoma somewhere where they can access it easily and where it's going to minimize the risk of issues with the stomal appliance is going to greatly improve your patient's quality of life. So if this is in hours and you have access to a stomal therapist, then you should have the stomal therapist mark the patient on both sides. If you don't have a stomal therapist, then it's a good idea to have the patient sit up or stand on the edge of the bed prior to taking the patient into the operating theatre and lying them flat. And you want to identify a location that the patient's going to be able to see um, and that's adequately placed in the rectus sheath, um, usually at approximately the umbilical level. The other consideration here is that if you have a grossly distended abdomen, that this may look quite different postoperatively. So factoring that into your uh, site marking is important. Patients should have DVT prophylaxis. They should have prophylactic antibiotics given. 
Patients should typically be placed in lithotomy in case you come across something unexpected at the time of the operation. You should try and have endoscopy available in case you're going to need that intraoperatively. Have a catheter placed. You may even consider a ureteric stent at the start of the case if the tumour is bulky and in the pelvis or there's um, a lot of inflammation from previous diverticular disease. And especially if you think this is malignant and you have time, it's a good idea to try to get a CT chest preoperatively to complete your staging. Because again, if they have metastatic disease, that may change uh, what you do and your decision making around surgery. I found trying to think about how I would talk about surgery for large bowel obstruction for this podcast episode has been quite difficult because it really does depend on so many factors. So I'll try to go through a couple of the principles, I guess, of the approaches um, and what features might actually change your decision making. So in general, there's a number of approaches. The first consideration is whether or not the patient needs an operation immediately or whether if you're seeing this patient at 10 or 11 o'clock at night or one in the morning, whether it can wait until first thing in the morning. Obviously, a patient who's septic and perforated and really unwell or who has evidence of ischemia is going to need an immediate operation. But other patients with fluid resuscitation, electrolyte correction, nasogastric tube and appropriate planning could be done in hours, which is obviously preferable if possible. The next consideration is whether or not that patient gets a laparoscopic or an open operation. In general, my approach in the exam is going to be that these patients all need an open operation. Typically, there's a lot of abdominal distension, which is going to reduce your space to operate in with a laparoscopic approach. And also, these patients' bowel is going to be distended and fragile and you can risk damage to that distended bowel with laparoscopic instruments. So although in some circumstances uh, specialists might do this uh, with a laparoscopic approach for the exam, I'm going to say that I will do a open approach. The next question is whether or not to do an oncologic operation or not. Given this is an emergency situation, you may not have the luxury of time to get biopsies and wait for results. So I think if there's any ambiguity or uncertainty, you should err on the side of caution and do an oncological resection. In terms of surgery for a large bowel obstruction, the choice of operation is going to depend largely on the location of the tumour. But also um, another consideration is the state of the cecum, which is often going to be the area that starts to become ischemic or starts to split in the setting of a competent ileocecal valve and gross distension. I like to think of the surgery as split up into tumors that are located proximal to the splenic flexure and those that are located distal to the splenic flexure. So if it's proximal to the splenic flexure, my plan is going to be to say that in the setting of a malignant large bowel obstruction, I would do a right hemicolectomy or an extended right hemicolectomy depending on where the tumor is located. Typically in these patients, In a medically well patient, you should be able to perform a primary anastomosis. Often the small bowel uh, is not as affected by the distension and is relatively healthy and well vascularized. So you should be able to do an anastomosis. But if they have risk factors, which we'll talk about later, you may um, do a loop ileostomy or do an end ileostomy. If the tumor is distal to the splenic flexure, your options are much broader 
options include a Hartman's procedure, which is resection of the pathology with a end colostomy and stapling of the usually rectal stump uh, without a primary anastomosis. This would be the procedure of choice in any unwell patient and especially if there's any shock or peritonitis, disseminated malignancy, patients frail, uh, that would typically be the procedure of choice. A traditional three-stage procedure used to be done where a proximal stoma was brought out and then at a subsequent operation the tumour was resected and then at a subsequent operation the stoma was reversed is not really done as much anymore. It's associated with a longer hospital stay and obviously need for multiple procedures. But a situation where you may consider that is in the setting of a mid to low rectal cancer where you need to unobstruct the patient who's presented with obstruction but also want to facilitate neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy, which as we talked about in our rectal cancer episode, improves outcomes for these patients. So by bringing out a proximal stoma, you get rid of the heat out of the acute situation and also make sure that you are ensuring that they have the best possible oncological outcome. It's just important to remember in that situation to bring out a a loop or to bring the distal end up to the stoma site so that you don't end up with a small segment of bowel as a closed loop obstruction from stoma down to the tumor. Resection and primary anastomosis is potentially an option where you resect the pathology and you reconstruct the intestine as a single procedure. In the left-sided lesions, this is a little bit more difficult because you're still going to have a lot of stool and gas in the proximal colon upstream for that, in that right colon that you're leaving behind. Because remember, we're talking about a presentation with an obstruction. In this situation, you should be thinking about doing a colonic irrigation or a mechanical decompression of that column of stool because you don't want that to then come through the anastomosis and disrupt it before it has uh, completely healed. Another option in this scenario is of resecting that left-sided primary, doing your primary anastomosis, doing the colonic lavage, and then also bringing up a loop ileostomy to cover your stoma. And I guess the benefits of this are that a loop ileostomy is much easier to reverse than a Hartman's type procedure, and there may be a higher likelihood of um, that stoma being reversed in the future. But you do still need to remove that column of stool that is proximal to the anastomosis. Another option in a patient with a left-sided lesion is a subtotal colectomy with an ileosigmoid or an ileorectal anastomosis. You may have to consider this in a patient with a left-sided lesion that is obstructing the colon with a competent valve and a threatened or perforated cecum. The downsides of this is obviously that you are removing most of the colon and these patients uh, often have poor long-term functional outcomes so they have uh, lots of loose stools multiple times a day and so if the patient has poor continence to begin with this can be a real problem but the benefit is that you're obviously removing that entire non-prepared segment of bowel that you would have to wash out otherwise Um, you're also removing distended colon that you uh, don't want to really anastomose to because it may be ischemic from that distension And also that in a patient who may have synchronous tumors, there's very high risk, um, such as those with an underlying uh, predisposition to colorectal cancer, you're not able to inspect that bowel and you may get them through the operation and then find out that they have a proximal cancer. But typically this is done in situations, as I mentioned, where the cecum is actually threatened. 
I hope that made sense about some of the different options and when you may or may not consider them. The next thing to talk about is whether or not you would do an anastomosis. Typically, the features that you should consider in regards to whether or not to anastomose or not um, is the patient's underlying health condition and comorbidities, whether the patient's had that area irradiated in the past, how stable they are at the time of surgery, if there's extensive contamination in the abdomen, the vascularity and viability of the bowel, whether it's actually technically feasible and whether or not that patient may require any adjuvant treatment postoperatively because if there's an anastomosis and they have complications from that, that may delay um, chemotherapy that they require afterwards. So scenarios that in general might make you concerned about forming an anastomosis include a patient with multiple comorbidities, such as those with an ASA 3 or more, patients who are very elderly, such as over 70 years old, patients who have been on steroid treatments, patients who are really unstable hemodynamically during the case or preoperatively, patients with previous radiation to those tissues, those with extensive metastatic disease, you might find that they have uh, multiple liver metastases at the time of surgery or uh, peritoneal disease that you weren't aware of, and also their preoperative nutritional state with malnourished patients having a much higher incidence of anastomotic leak. Local factors that may also influence your decision include the bowel vascularity, and that also comes into the degree of distension, as very distended bowel um, is going to be partially ischemic, so you need to consider that. If there's a lot of contamination, fecal contamination from a perforation, for example, if they have extensive peritoneal disease, if there's a large proximal fecal load that you're not able to or willing to uh, decompress, and if the anastomosis is going to be very distal. If you decide not to do an anastomosis, then we've already talked a little bit about the options, but this includes a end colostomy uh, or doing an anastomosis but covering it with a loop ileostomy. And if you're going to leave a column of stool between the ileostomy and the anastomosis, making sure to wash that out. Another intraoperative finding that you may C is extensive peritoneal carcinomatosis or just carcinomatosis, doesn't have to be extensive. Typically, this is underestimated on the preoperative imaging and you may not actually know that this is there until you've already opened the abdomen. In colorectal cancer, unlike ovarian cancer, for example, debulking tumour does not improve survival. So your goal really should be palliation as this makes a patient have stage four disease and you should be aiming to treat their symptoms, which in this situation that we're talking about now is that they've presented with an obstruction. And the options here include, if possible, and minimal disease, you may choose to resect the primary and do an anastomosis. Um, But obviously, if they have peritoneal disease, this is higher risk of a breakdown doing a bypass of the area of obstruction. This isn't done as frequently anymore and often results in recurrent episodes of obstruction in the future as the tumour progresses. A proximal loop ostomy, whether that's a loop colostomy or ileostomy, um, and making sure that you bring that distal end up, even just as a mucous fistula to avoid that potential closed loop distal to your stoma or even just a venting tube gastrostomy in a patient where you're not able to uh, 
relieve the obstruction so that they don't need a long-term nasogastric tube. I've mentioned it a couple of times now, so I might just go into a little bit of detail about how to perform an on-table colonic lavage. As I've mentioned, this is to remove that column of stool proximal to any anastomosis. Some key points when we're talking about colonic lavage is that you have to mobilize the entire colon. So you have to take down the hepatic and splenic flexures because otherwise the fluid will just build up in the right colon. You won't be able to decompress it through the colon. Typically, access will be gained to the bowel by performing a appendicectomy and inserting a Foley catheter through that um, appendiceal orifice. But you can also um, do a hole in the cecum, for example, with a um, purse string suture there around the catheter um, if the patient's had an appendicectomy before. And a three-litre bag of warm normal saline is usually then collected connected to um, sterile cystoscopy tubing and that Foley catheter and then is washed through the bowel with the distal end either if it's long enough and you have a skinny patient um, put off the side of the bed um, and collected in a obviously non-sterile bucket on the side or if you don't have the ability to get the distal colon out of the patient uh, well to be able to control the effluent you may use some um, large anesthetic tubing or some sort of other tubing and tie that into the distal end of the bowel. You may have to milk the contents out a little bit before you do the colonic lavage and basically you uh, wash out the colon until the bowel is cleared of solid stool. Sounds easy to talk about but from what surgeons have told me it's quite fiddly and difficult and dirty um, so you have to have a pretty good uh, reason to be wanting to do it. Postoperatively, patients are often very unwell, um, so it's a good idea to have thought about their disposition preoperatively and discussed with ICU or HDU and have them go there um, postoperatively. Typically, you'd leave in a nasogastric tube for these patients. Um, they're not going to be a good candidate for ERAS. And make sure that you perform a completion colonoscopy once the patient has recovered to rule out synchronous lesions in any part of the bowel that you've not been able to inspect preoperatively and that the pathology is discussed at a multidisciplinary team meeting. I'll briefly touch on stents, uh, which is something we should obviously talk about when we're considering large bowel obstruction. It used to be thought that stents may be a bridge to surgery, but Evidence has shown that this leads to an increased rates of bowel perforation and converting tumours to T4 tumours. So really in Australia and especially in my institution, stents are considered a palliative procedure and really should be only used for patients with incurable or unresectable cancers. I've also only seen a few of these, but they are technically very difficult to do. Um, and in my institution, the last one we did was actually two colorectal surgeons came in to do the procedure it should really be considered mostly for left-sided lesions as you can't really negotiate right-sided lesions very easily. You need an experienced team. The tumour has to be traversable using either endoscopic or fluoroscopic means without too much bowel angulation. It's really only good for intraluminal cancers. It's not very good for benign or extrinsic strictures, which have high perforation and migration rates. And in that same token, it's not really used in rectal cancers because it causes a lot of patient discomfort and uh, urgency and pain symptoms, as well as has a very high stent migration rate. So that's all I had to talk about for 
large bowel obstruction. It's definitely a fair game question for the fellowship exam. I know a previous question was about a patient presenting with a large bowel obstruction on an x-ray with three days of symptoms consistent with this. And the question was just to describe your management of the patient. Um, and as you can see, there are so many different considerations. That question uh, was a long question. I think it definitely needed a lot of time to answer. I hope I've given a okay summary. It's a bit tricky to put into one episode, but uh, maybe at some point we'll talk about some cases, which I think will put it all in a little bit more perspective. So the next topic for today's episode is pseudo-obstruction. The eponymous name is Ogilvy syndrome. And pseudo-obstruction is a non-mechanical functional obstruction of the large colon. It's relatively poorly understood why this happens and from personal experience, this can definitely be a very difficult problem to manage. So starting with the etiology of the condition. As I've mentioned, it's not that understood. It's thought to be a functional problem with the colonic motility, which is obviously driven by the enteric nervous system and um, that's influenced again by the sympathetic nervous system which inhibits colonic function and the parasympathetics which stimulate the function of the bowel. So it's thought that pseudo-obstruction has something to do with an imbalance in the sympathetic and parasympathetic input into bowel function. There are various risk factors for pseudo-obstruction that mostly have to do with things that are related to a sympathetic response. So surgery, heart attacks, trauma, um, and can also be related to drugs with anticholinergic activity, which, as we all know, reduces the function of the parasympathetic symptom. So going into a few of those risk factors, I split them up into patients who are medically unwell, surgically unwell, or drugs. So medical risk factors include heart attacks, respiratory problems such as pneumonia, requiring ventilation, pulmonary embolus, COPD or thoracic surgery, neurological symptoms or problems such as patients who've got strokes or MS, Parkinson's disease and dementia, trauma, um, which can be any part of the body having trauma, malignancy of any cause, especially disseminated malignancy, sepsis, patients with pancreatitis or pseudomembranous colitis, and patients with severe metabolic issues such as electrolyte abnormalities, liver or renal failure, diabetics that are poorly controlled, alcoholics, and patients with hypothyroidism. Surgical causes are pretty much anything, but some of the main surgeries that can be related to or more commonly related to development of pseudobstruction includes abdominal surgery, pelvic or gynecologic surgery, cardiovascular or thoracic operations, Orthopedics, we see very commonly after hip and knee operations, patients having neurosurgical problems, commonly post cesarean section, um, or especially if patients have uh, difficult birth or postpartum hemorrhage, and also after transplantation. Common drugs that can be associated with pseudo obstruction include antidepressants, opiates, anti Parkinson drugs, anticholinergics benzodiazepines, multiple different types of chemotherapy, clonidine and calcium channel blockers. 
So going into how these patients present, they'll typically present the same way as a pseudo-obstruction patient, so with abdominal distension, potentially nausea and vomiting, and not opening the bowels. They can be septic or peritonitic if they've perforated, and the cecum is often the part that perforates, being the widest segment of the colon. It's at the highest risk of ischemia. I've seen lots of different numbers that people use to determine whether or not the cecum is dilated at a point where it's at risk. Some people say 10 centimetres, some people say 12 centimetres, some people less than that or more than that. Um, I think it goes into a little bit into what the patient's bowel function is usually like. So some patients with chronic constipation may tolerate a larger sequel size than those presenting with an acute um, pseudo-obstruction. The diagnosis is typically made with a history um, examination and imaging. An abdominal x-ray may show gross colonic distension, but this is often difficult to differentiate from a malignant or obstructive bowel obstruction or a pseudo-obstruction. But typically a CT scan, especially if you can think about this as a diagnosis and give rectal contrast to rule out a mechanical distal obstruction, can help to Uh, confirm the diagnosis and you'll see uh, dilated bowel and usually a sort of transition zone where it just gently tapers without a mechanical or physical blockage there on a CT scan. Treatment involves um, recognition of the problem, timely intervention and reversing any potentially contributing causes and then things to actually reduce distension. So the initial management is usually establishing the diagnosis. You may have to place a nasogastric tube and you should definitely place that patient nil by mouth. Typically, they'll require fluid and electrolyte replacements. You need to look at their drug chart and their medications list and cease any potentially contributing medications. So this includes opiate drugs, anticholinergics. You want to make sure you treat any potentially underlying conditions such as cardiac failure or respiratory failure. And then you need to um, identify anything else you can do to try to reverse the problem. So if the patient's not moving, get the physio to come and see them and get them out of bed, move them around, make sure you tell the patient how important it is. Even if they're lying in bed, they can move their arms and legs, um, which will help uh, with that mobility and trying to get the bowel working again. You need to identify whether or not this is a serious issue, such as a patient with impending sequel ischemia or perforation or a patient who's already got evidence of perforation. And if they haven't perforated and you're instigating this medical management, you need to have some safety nets in place. So serial abdominal examinations, a daily abdominal x-ray to monitor that sequel size and identify if you need to be moving to more active management. Patients can have a rectal tube placed. Typically, I'll do this myself with a rigid sigmoidoscope to make sure, again, that there's no distal obstruction, especially if I haven't yet got a CT with rectal contrast or I can't get one for whatever reason. And I'll place a large bore um, rectal tube or intercostal catheter if I don't have a rectal drain um, under vision as high up as possible to try to decompress some of the gas. You can Use fleet enemas um, and oral appearance to try to help move the colon. And approximately 70% of patients will respond to this conservative or supportive treatment, uh, which is probably most of what we would be doing in clinical practice. But you need to be really clear to everyone that not giving the patient opiates and fixing their electrolytes and getting them to move may actually be enough to fix the problem and that it is really important.
There's a couple of other treatments we can use for pseudo-obstructions that come under medical, endoscopic, and surgical headings. So there's two different types of drugs that we can give for the medical treatment of a pseudo-obstruction. Basically, these are acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. So they inhibit the destruction of acetylcholine by acetylcholinesterase. And acetylcholine is an important parasympathetic neurotransmitter. And remember, we want to get the bowel moving again, so we want to stimulate that parasympathetic pathway. This needs to be given under cardiac monitoring. So the patient will need to be in the CCU or the ICU, which can sometimes be difficult. And it's given over three to five minutes, usually a two milligram dose of neostigmine um, with pretty good results with one dose, but you can also repeat the dose if you need to every few hours. The side effects include bradycardia, low blood pressure and bronchoconstriction. And you need to have atropine available to reverse the effects of it if they do get any of these side effects. Pyridostigmine is an alternative, which is a long-acting acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. Um, and it's been given in a trial setting for patients who hadn't responded to neostigmine with some effect. I haven't seen this used in practice, but typically um, neostigmine is what we would use. If you can't get a monitored bed or you're worried about the patient and want to make sure that you get a decompression under vision or have a look at the um, mucosa, you can do a colonoscopic decompression and place a rectal tube as well. This should be done very carefully. You should use carbon dioxide insufflation and use minimal insufflation. If you see any sign of mucosal ischemia, then the procedure should be stopped and a resection should be undertaken. Um, and you can go all the way to the cecum and suck all of the gas and liquid stool out and place a decompression tube or rectal tube under vision. We would usually do this as first line in my current hospital, but at other hospitals I've worked at, they do neostigmine first line. Obviously, if you have any concern about colonic ischemia, then you wouldn't be giving the patient neostigmine. You'd be having a look with a colonoscopy. I don't think it matters which of these you go to first as long as you um, have a reason why you do so. Surgery is obviously a last option. It's very rarely required. I've only ever seen it needed once. And the indications would be a patient with ischemia from the distension, peritonitis, if they were refractory to the pharmacological endoscopic therapies. And usually you would try the medication and decompression for you know three or five days before you would progress with surgery. And the options um, include a cecostomy, which I, again, have only ever seen once. It wasn't for this indication, but it's a terrible stoma to manage um, and really uh, should only be used in very selective situations, such as a patient who's pretty much too unwell to have a colectomy, with colectomy being the other option surgically. Um, and it's usually a right hemicolectomy due to a sequel perforation. Um, and you may need to do a subtotal if there's gross colonic distension um, with either a primary anastomosis or a ileostomy and mucous fistula. If you're doing an operation, this patient's probably quite unwell. So you have to take that into consideration when you're uh, considering uh, joining this patient. I think in the exam, my plan is going to be say that I would do a subtotal colectomy and an end ileostomy in that situation. So 
So that's it for today's episode on large bowel obstruction and pseudo-obstruction. I was going to throw sigmoid volvulus into the mix, but we're already 40 minutes in, so might call it quits here. Thanks again for listening and remember to rate, review and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!